Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Archaeology at Cape Canaveral. My main intent was to look at the prehistoric material. There were burial mounds, sand burial mounds here. There were a lot of shell middens. Some of them were major, well-known. Others were just small scattering of middens. We'll discuss black soldiers in World War II, Soldiers sworn to protect and defend the nation with their lives were subjected to treatment that undermined the nation's finest values. And we'll talk about the Pepper Hill neighborhood in Quincy, Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Stand the shores of Cape Canaveral, looking up to the blue. Let's see what those rockets By 1959, the new National Aeronautics and Space Administration was successfully launching lunar probes from Cape Canaveral. In the 1960s and 70s, George Long was the first archaeologist hired by NASA to survey their property in Brevard County. They had been informed by the National Park Service, for one thing, it would be a good idea considering the extent of the property. And interesting enough, the um, Public Affairs Department got very interested. They thought that it would be good to develop an exhibit in addition to preserving the, you know, the archaeological sites. And my purpose was to do a survey, locate sites on the NASA property and also the Air Force side, the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, because they were involved over there at the time also. Locate all the sites so that they would know where they were in case of new construction or if anybody else wanted to do further in-depth research or investigation. And also to gather some artifacts up for a, um, an exhibit at the Visitor Information Center. NASA is naturally thought of as looking toward the future, but there are many layers of history on NASA property, including the presence of prehistoric indigenous people. My main intent was to look at the prehistoric material. There were burial mounds, sand burial mounds here. Uh, there were a lot of shell middens. Some of them were major, well-known. Others were just small scattering of middens. This is refuge material from eating the marine resources. And, of course, here we've got the Indian River Lagoon at the NASA property. We have the uh, Mosquito Lagoon, and we have Banana River, so you can expect to find a lot of archaeological sites. And these went back to um, some of the earliest would be probably at least 5,000 years before present, the archaic period sites. I found some pottery dating to that period. And then it keeps on going up into the historic periods, and there's no way to draw a line there. We even have archaeologists now, Tom Penders out at the Cape, looking at some of the missile launch sites uh, from the 50s. In addition to the NASA property on North Merritt Island, archaeologist George Long also surveyed the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. 
There were remains of burial mounds, particularly along the east shore of the Banana River, which would be the part that's facing uh, Merritt Island. There's a number of uh, good sites along that area, and a lot of it had been, the right-of-ways had been cleared there for power lines, so there was uh, easy pickings, pottery sherds all over the place, and I I did get an extensive uh, surface collection from that site and over here on the NASA side of uh, pottery sherds and shell tools. As the first archaeologist to survey NASA property in the 1960s and 70s, George Long discovered and recorded prehistoric sites and artifacts and colonial-era sites as well. Elliott's plantation was on NASA property. That would be the uh, British period, 1763 to 83 in Florida. There was a number of um, plantations on the East Coast, and Andrew Turnbull established the colony at New Smyrna, and apparently the southern end of the uh, plantations ended up on the area now that was the NASA property, now the National um, Seashore, Canaveral National Seashore. And there were um, stories about a sugar mill ruins in the kind of heavily treed area over on the um, Indian River side of State Road 3 that runs down the middle of that narrow part of uh, Merritt Island. One of the local um, people who were very aware of sites here named Bill Andrews up north of here told me how to get there. And there was a sugar mill there. And a lot of interesting things have happened since then. I mainly just recorded it, and then it took on a life of its own. People from New Smyrna, I think Dot Moore, maybe Ross Foster from here might have got involved in it, and the National Park Service, and they did a lot of intensive research and identified it as the Elliott Plantation and found out that also on the other side, on the Mosquito Lagoon, there was a small ruin there, a block with cocaine plot probably and tabby mortar that Ripley Bullen uh, described. He thought it might be a Confederate salt works. It was there at the Ross Hammock site. But with this further research, they were able to tie it all together. It's one major, major um, complex of British period plantation. Very interesting. A team of archaeologists is building on George Long's work with the Cape Canaveral Archaeological Mitigation Project. Tom Penders, cultural resource manager for the Space Force Station, approached archaeologists at the University of Central Florida to continue vital work on the Space Coast. Archaeologist Amanda Groff is part of that team. There's a lot of changing things that are happening along the coastline of Florida. A lot of the environment is changing, and we don't want to lose those archaeological sites. And so that is pretty much what mitigation is. We're mitigating any of those issues that could harm or cause archaeological sites to be lost. And so he needed hands on deck. And this is a beautiful opportunity not only for students to get archaeological experience, but also for us to help preserve and save a lot of those archaeological sites that are at risk. University of Central Florida students are actively involved in the Cape Canaveral Archaeological Mitigation Project. They are the ones that are out there excavating. They are literally doing mapping. They are doing survey. They are putting shovels in the ground and they're doing phase one and phase two types of archaeology. And this is the type of work that a lot of our majors might go into who pursue archaeology. They're going to go into cultural resource management. And it can be difficult sometimes to get that experience prior to graduation. So this actually makes them more marketable as well. Having that type of experience, they can take with them into the workforce and potentially even into cultural resource management. Student archaeologists have recently discovered and documented exciting prehistoric artifacts like a drilled shark's tooth and a bone pin at the Penny Plot site. Amanda Groff. 
We've been working at this particular location since 2019-2020, and we too are finding really interesting prehistoric artifacts. We're finding evidence of lots of shell use, so we're finding shell middens. We discovered a mound, not a burial mound, but a mound that appears to have been particularly living kind of location. So we're finding really rich prehistoric archaeological information on top of the obvious historic relationship to that particular area as well. Like George Long before them, Amanda Groff and her team are documenting historic sites and finding historic artifacts, as well as evidence of prehistoric people in Cape Canaveral. There were a long history of lighthouse keepers that were living out on the Cape, for obvious reasons to protect those ships that were coming into port. But there were various other settlers in that area as well. And for example, at the Nathan Penny site, or the Penny Plot site, it's named for Nathan Penny, who was a sailor, a postmaster. He passed away, I believe in 1811, and we never really knew exactly where he was buried or where his homestead was located. And that That's part of what we're working for. And we made some interesting discoveries last year with the help of USF. They did some various types of uh, ground penetrating radar and provided some some maps for us to work from. And we ended up finding what appeared to be what look like nails that are pertaining to that particular time period. So we think we have somewhat affirmed where Nathan Penny's homestead may or may not have been located. NASA has been around long enough that its early launch areas are becoming historic. Amanda Groff and her team have just started work on the bumper rocket blockhouse. This is affiliated with Launch Complex 1, 2, 3, and 4, so the original launch complexes that were a part of the Cape. And we know where the actual launch pad itself is. It's still there. But there was a bumper house that was affiliated with it that was made out of tar paper. And so, you know, Florida, things don't last very long. And so what we're trying to do is locate where this bumper blockhouse would have been. And so we actually have students going out, and we've received permission to put in some phase one shovel testing. We do metal detection, hopefully a GPR, some soil probing, just so we can basically say this is where the bumper house was located. It's the 75th anniversary of this particular launch pad in two years. And so I think that there's this hope that we can locate it so it can be a part of that celebration. Photos from the early bumper rocket launches look like a 1950s sci-fi movie. Groff says that those photos are helping archaeologists locate the bumper blockhouse site. Absolutely. In addition to students getting the archaeological experience, they're also getting research experience. And they are doing their own firsthand research. And one student in particular has been working really hard to do this background research on the bumper blockhouse. And she very ingeniously took some of those historic photos and aligned them with what she was seeing on the landscape to try to better hone in on the potential location where the blockhouse was located. So we're, we're utilizing those photos as documentation that can hopefully help better pinpoint where the blockhouse is. The legacy of archaeological work that George Long started on NASA property 60 years ago lives on in more ways than one. Amanda Groff. George Long was my first archaeology teacher when I was an undergrad student at UCF. And, you know, over the, oh my gosh, almost a quarter of a century, we've grown closer and closer. And when we started working out at, in particular, Penny, students started to do background research to better understand the history of that particular area. And they were pulling up 
old permits, old forms, and they were seeing George Long's name on it. And I was like, hey, I know that guy. Let's give him a call. And so now when we have a question about potentially something that we're trying to locate, we just call George. And he has a memory that is as sharp as a tack. And he can tell me, go to the light post, take a left, walk 10 paces, and he knows where everything is. And so it's so wonderful to have that legacy and connection with George that continues to this day. We spoke with George Long, the first archaeologist hired by NASA to survey their property, and Long's former student, Amanda Groff, who is doing archaeology on the same property with her students today. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Registration is now open for the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum and the Florida State Genealogical Society Conference being held May 18th through 20th in Lakeland. Go to myfloridahistory.org to find out about the engaging presentations and exciting tours that are part of the event. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, World War II saw the largest conscription of black soldiers in American history, and many of them trained in Florida. Yes, arriving from all parts of the nation and training in the segregated South, Black recruits faced discrimination on their trips into surrounding towns and poor conditions on base. Writing in the New Republic, Lucille D. Milner offered a prediction for race relations in post-World War II America. Quote, a new Negro will return from the war, she wrote in 1944, a bitter Negro, if he is disappointed again. He will have been taught to kill, to suffer, to die for something he believes in, and he will live those rules to gain his personal rights. John Evans used Milner's quote to introduce his 2001 article on black soldiers stationed at Dale Mabry Field and Camp Gordon Johnston outside Tallahassee that explored the actions of soldiers subjected to racial oppression and the development of a racial disturbance plan by the military and Tallahassee officials to address anticipated racial violence. A Ph.D. student at Florida State University at the time of publication, Evans' article was part of a special issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Unlike other special issues, this one included commentary on the articles by three historians, Glenda Alice Rabbi, David Jackson Jr., and Clarence Taylor. The commenters noted especially Evans' characterization of collective violent acts carried out by blacks in military service not as chaotic and spontaneous outbursts, but as deliberate acts of resistance to racial oppression. During World War II, disturbances in the black Tallahassee neighborhood of Frenchtown were frequent and violent. 
On Easter Sunday, 1945, the evening calm was shattered when, according to the Tallahassee police chief, W.I. Prater, quote, about 200 to 250 colored troops went into Otis McNeil's place and told McNeil they were going overseas and they were going to take Frenchtown apart and paint it red, end quote. The Tallahassee Daily Democrat described the action in detail, documenting a series of broken windows as the men moved along Macomb Street before finally converging at, quote, the colored USO on Tennessee Street, where they tore the screen doors off the front and rear of the building, end quote. Local and military police responded to the disturbance, and state highway patrol units in Quincy, Monticello, Chipley and Lake City were placed on alert in case the violence spread. Connie, what steps did black leaders take to address inequities in conscription and employment in defense industries? Evans argues that war, and particularly World War II, highlighted, quote, the growing frustration and anger of African Americans. Soldiers sworn to protect and defend the nation with their lives were subjected to treatment that undermined the nation's finest values. The blatant incongruity between American opposition to Axis racism in Europe, Africa, and Asia, and the maintenance of a rigid caste system at home energized a civil rights campaign that demanded opportunities for full African-American participation in the national defense, end quote. The double V campaign to conquer fascism abroad and racism at home was led by the NAACP and A. Philip Randolph, president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The Double V campaign achieved some notable wins. The 1940 passage of an amended Conscription Act removed prohibitions to black enlistment in the military. And a 1941 creation of the Fair Employment Practices Commission to implement a ban on, quote, discrimination in defense industries and in federal agencies, end quote. Although these were important steps, Evans recognizes that neither measure was as effective as initially envisioned. In the case of conscription, the would-be soldier had to be acceptable to the land or naval forces, a stipulation that allowed the military to reject many recruits. Those who were accepted for military service were restricted to Negro regiments. Once the regiments filled, no additional men could join. As Evans notes, when white regiments were still seeking recruits, black men were rejected for enlistment because all black units were filled. What did these black soldiers experience in Tallahassee? Evans states that of the almost 900,000 blacks who served in the U.S. Army, 80% of them trained in the South. Segregated in civilian life, they found themselves also segregated into the least desirable sections of the camp areas that were congested and lacking in recreational facilities. At Camp Gordon Johnston, which was tasked with training for the use of amphibious landing techniques and equipment, Conflicts between black and white soldiers and deplorable conditions drew the attention of the NAACP, the press, and the military. Complaints about the lack of service clubs for blacks, the verbal abuse and violence against black soldiers, and barracks for black soldiers that had dirt floors and unsanitary toilets filled reports. 
black soldiers at Camp Gordon Johnston were on their third training assignment and concluded that they were, quote, being shuffled from camp to camp to prevent meaningful participation in the war effort, end quote. Outside the camp, black soldiers experienced the ongoing oppression of Jim Crow segregation, a situation that the Tallahassee Daily Democrat denied in a 1944 editorial titled, The South Has No Race Problem. In another editorial, the newspaper reassured Tallahassee's white citizens that War Department anti-discrimination rules for military installations did not apply to civilian stores, theaters, transportation, or recreation facilities and were of no threat to white institutions. Evans concludes that for Tallahassee whites, quote, segregation was not a problem to be solved. It was the answer to the question of African-Americans' place in society, end quote. Connie, how did Tallahassee and military officials address these local conflicts? By the fall of 1944, the city had created a police auxiliary five times larger than the police force to supplement the regular policemen in the line of duty and in the case of emergencies. Two disturbances resulted in tighter supervision of drinking places and other night spots and suspension of transportation for black soldiers from the base to Tallahassee. The growing concern for public order led to the creation of racial disturbance plans for five Florida cities, Jacksonville, Miami, St. Petersburg, Tallahassee, and Tampa. The Tallahassee plan had two parts field orders detailing the tactical mission and goals, and the composite plan containing background information and detailing the delegation of authority. In the event of civil disturbance, implementation of the plan rested with the military. Military officials would declare martial law, take control over police, deputies, and fire departments, censor all radio announcements and news releases, and confine blacks to designated refuge areas. Quote, until order was restored, only civil and military police could cross the line separating racial areas, end quote. The plan was never implemented, but Evans sees it and the ongoing unrest as evidence of the evolving climate of the time. In his interpretation, the creation of a plan that takes matters out of the realm of spontaneous action by white mobs was a step forward. Indeed, he praises Governor Spessard Holland as a moderate in race relations who acted to protect the black community. Although the commenters on this article were not convinced by his last assertion, they agreed with his interpretation of World War II as a transition period in which black soldiers challenged the Southern racial caste system in many ways, including direct confrontation. Interesting. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The historic African-American neighborhood of Pepper Hill in Quincy is endangered. Holly Baker has more. 
The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The Florida Trust has identified the Pepper Hill neighborhood in Gadsden County as one of the most endangered historic properties in the state. It's been included on their annual 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about Pepper Hill, an African-American neighborhood in Quincy, Florida. Pepper Hill is an 11 to Save site that is located on the south side of downtown Quincy. Quincy is one of Florida's oldest continuously occupied cities, I would say. Quincy itself was established in 1828, and it's named for John Quincy Adams. Following the Civil War, it really emerged on the scene as a village that grew to be one of Florida's most important cultural, political, and commercial epicenters. And so by the late 19th century, it began to flourish as a community built around the tobacco industry. And Pepper Hill itself was a community of African-American laborers for the tobacco industry that worked in various uh, packing warehouses on the south side of downtown, and they were scattered basically throughout the neighborhood itself. In the early 20th century, Pepper Hill was a thriving neighborhood that consisted of homes built for tobacco workers, as well as churches, tobacco warehouses, and a Masonic lodge. The district is roughly bounded by West Jefferson Street, which is US 90 on the north, Pat Thomas Parkway on the west, Martin Luther King Boulevard on the south, and South Stewart Street on the east. And then it's characterized by one-story wood frame buildings. It's uh, home to a number of small little dwellings that many people refer to as shotgun homes. And the story behind the shotgun house is essentially that you can shoot a shotgun and the front door goes all the way through the back and without hitting anything in the house. Found primarily in the urban South, shotgun houses exemplified a working class style of home that was common in black neighborhoods in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Pepper Hill's churches were also significant to the community. The building served as important religious and social hubs. Quincy is also home to one of the earliest uh, African and Methodist Episcopal church congregations in the state of Florida, the Arnett Chapel AME Church on South Duval Street. It's also home to one of the oldest uh, Masonic temples, which is the Grand Lodge of Free and Accepted Masons a structure that was uh, constructed in 1907 to basically serve as a meeting hall for Black Masons in the area. And one of the interesting things about, you know, this particular site, which was renovated in 1976, is that it also served as a place that we kind of refer to as locations on the Chitlin Circuit. So it was also that meeting hall was used for dances and special events and, and concerts and things at time during segregation when traveling musicians and artists would visit Quincy and Pepper Hill as they passed through the state of Florida along the Chitlin Circuit. The remaining structures in Pepper Hill tell a story about the neighborhood's past. If they're not preserved, a significant part of Quincy's history will be lost forever. Ennis Davis. There was a comprehensive survey of the neighborhood that was completed in 1996. However, since that time, with no preservation policies in place to protect the neighborhood's historical character and sense of place and built environment, 
it's estimated that nearly one third of the neighborhoods contributing resources since that survey effort in 1996 have been lost to incremental demolition. So as a part of this process, nominators of the Pepper Hill uh, neighborhood hope to raise awareness of this district's contributions to Quincy's culture and heritage in an effort to build momentum and preserve, protecting, surviving, contributing resources within the neighborhood. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and their annual 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.